Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's See what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you doing this evening? Oh, doing so well. How about you? Oh, also doing so very well. Thank you. Came home the other day, and I had a pumpkin 
sitting at the end of my driveway, and you probably know that I collect green witches, um, popularized images of green witches. And one of my favorites is a series of pieces that get stuck into a pumpkin with a green witch's head and two arms with her fingers outstretched and two legs in her stockings, right, her striped stockings with her boots. She originally came with a broom, but the broom, of course, has long since gotten lost. But you, they have prongs in them, right, and you stick them into a pumpkin. So her body is the pumpkin. Fun. Oh, so fun. It's so great. And she's a really... She's a really good-looking green witch, too. You know, some of them they do with, like, broken teeth or black warts, you know. But no, she's a really nice-looking green witch. She's very jolly. And uh, so as I came home the other day, there had been this tiny, light little snowfall. And there she was, and she looked like she had an ermine cape on, right? Oh. Because her shoulders and her back were, like, all dusted with this white snow. Nice. Oh, that's a visual. I love that. <laughs> I'm I'm still out there planting bulbs. I was wondering. I was going to ask you if you had planted I your tulip bulbs. I, I had. I have now planted 350 of those 400 oh. bulbs. Oh my! That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of them, so I'm, I'm down to the, I've, I've been telling people daffodils, they're really narcissus. They're scented mm-hmm. narcissus. And oh, uh, they have, they're big bulbs, so you really got to plant them deep. And of course, my soil is like all rocks. It's a real deal to um, get them six, six inches down. And of course, with the smaller bulbs, I usually cheat a little, right? Like I dig a hole and I kind of loosen the soil at the bottom of the hole and then I put one on the right and one on the left. Right. Instead of just, just one bulb in the middle of the hole, right? Right. But with the narcissist, you can't do that. Because they're big enough, they like take up just about the whole size of the hole of the... Right, I have a a bulb digger. You know what those are, right? Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah. So... Uh, <clears throat> That's a big bulb. They're big bulbs, yeah. Wow. So what have you been up to? Oh, we had, I had company for Thanksgiving week. That was so phenomenal, just uh, being with my aunt and cousin and her two kids and doing a lot of cooking, hanging out in the kitchen and um, after they went back to Florida, I've been outside a bit because we got a warm spell. So I'm going to enjoy some 40s today and 50s tomorrow, get the last of things moved around outside, and um, then we go cold again. So it's it's been nice. I'm really just enjoying the season. It's getting dark really early. I'm finding myself getting sleepy before 8 o'clock. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> yeah, because you've been outside working. Yeah, and it's so interesting. And then I'll get up around one and want to stay up for a couple hours. So it's it's been interesting the last couple weeks with that. So just enjoying getting getting rest and going with the flow of when I feel like it's time to sleep and time to be up. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they did some really interesting experiments with people finding that in caves, so they didn't have any light cues. Hmm. Odd experiment, huh? Most people, be... most people oriented themselves to a 23-hour day. Huh. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. I wonder what that's all about. Where is this extra hour coming from? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the only guess is that we do know that the planet did used to spin a little faster. Hmm. Um, but I don't know if it coincided even with the first, you know, unicellular life, let alone multicellular life. Certainly not, since there have been hominids even. I mean, long, 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 long time ago when the planet was spinning faster, there was like, you know, it was all fire and brimstone and water and, you know, violence, shall we say. Not or mm-hmm. not conducive to life. Right. Right, <laughs> not conducive. Whole different thing. At all. Yeah. And, hey, my ginger fizz has finally gotten fizzy. Uh, it took forever because, of course, it's been chillier. So I now see that that the best fizzes are made in the summer. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. They, they like to have that heat to, to activate. But finally, because it's been, what, like a month that I've had my ginger fizz working, working, working. And now, day by day, I'm <clears throat> draining off a cup or so a day. And... Seeing, you know, at what point um, I'm really liking it. The first um, cup that I bottled, when I opened the bottle, I got a real from it. But a couple of tasters have thought that it would be better with the addition of some sparkling water. Oh. Because they didn't feel they were... Yes, it was very concentrated, very sugary, in fact, and that, that it wasn't really that sparkly in terms of, like, ginger ale. Mm, interesting. So, you know, I'm always finding ways to amuse myself with herbs. Mm. Isn't that a delight? But, <laughs> that, we, that we never come to the end of ways to amuse ourselves with herbs and plants. I'm very yeah. excited about the guest tonight. I read Lisa Butcher's book, Raising the Bottom, a few years ago, and I thought it was a really brilliant book and a a very bold and brave kind of thing to do. So I hope that uh, you are intrigued by what I'm saying. She's a registered nurse who's been working with women for nearly 30 years to help them uh, live better lives, become better parents, and deal with what her book is about and what her expertise is about. She realized after 20-plus years of working in hospitals that doctors, and in fact traditional health care overall, has really 
very little to offer women who are dealing with issues of addiction to anything. Stay until 9 o'clock or come back at 9 o'clock East Coast time so that you can hear me talk to Lisa Hutcher. Do we have anybody with questions tonight? Uh, we have lots of callers that have dialed in, and I see one caller that has already pressed one to get themselves in the queue. I'll remind everyone else listening, if you have a question for Susan tonight, please do press one to get yourself lined up in the queue. And let's see, our first caller is dialing in from the 252 area code. From the 252, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Thanks for taking my Hi. call. Um, I would like to get your thoughts on something. I'm in a new adventure, and I have dairy sheep that arrived 10 days ago. And I've thought about doing this for a long time, and I've gotten a lot of guidance, and I think I've chosen a breed that we're going to be very happy with. But I'm going to have lambs in February, and I'm not interested in increasing my flock by a lot. And I know as a dairy farmer, you're in the same position where you have kids. And I'm wondering, do you ever process them for meat? How do you, how do you approach keeping the size of your herd manageable? When I first kept goats, I was actually, because they always keep a very small herd, so it's rare that I have more than a few kids to deal with. And in the first years, I was actually able to trade my kids for useful things, things that I'm still using, in fact. And I might have continued on happily that way if I hadn't kept track of the people and the kids. And they all came to horrible ends, which I will not go into detail about. So um, the next thing I tried was there was a um, kind of a petting zoo roadside attraction within half an hour of me. And they would buy baby sheep and goats. Um, for more than it cost in gas to get there, so it was worth it. And um, you didn't even have to dock their tails or dehorn them. Okay. If you just bring them, the babies, they had to be able to um, be okay on a bottle. And, of course, they sold bottles to the kids to feed the animals, and so they were on bottles all summer long. And they swore okay. that they kept them. I saw that they also had <clears throat> lions and tigers. Oh, my, I know what they did with those goats and sheep. But it felt, you know, like a, a reasonable out. Okay. I had some concerns about as that. I, as, I, as I sank more and more into the wise woman tradition, however, and into being both and... I really took stock of the fact that I give birth. And the both and for that is give death. So I started talking to the goats and I said, 
think that I want to give death to you. You're a baby buck. And the baby buck said, here's how you do it. In fact, in any locale, we can pretty much tell when people start domesticating animals because midden piles or bone piles go from being different animals, male and female, old and young, to being almost exclusively young male animals. And, and, and we're in a season of that now. And, I mean, we... Exactly, exactly. And so the goat said, what you do, you cut my throat. And I bleed to death. And I talked to some midwives because I thought they might have experience with people bleeding to death. Or not quite bleeding to death, but almost bleeding to death, and indeed they did. And they said that women universally say that bleeding to death is fabulous. It feels so good. It's like a warm bath. You, like, float off. In fact, one midwife said that what she does when a woman is bleeding is she grabs her by the shoulders and shakes her and screams in her face, stop bleeding right now. You have a baby to take care of. So I thought that I could witness that. I thought that I could witness someone feeling good as they died and that it wasn't violent but a gift. And I won't tell the whole story, but I tell the apprentices the whole story of... um, creation and how there was not death, original creation. And that brought about a lot of distress because things got extremely crowded very very quickly. And that death was given as the gift to allow uh, life to continue to grow and expand and experiment. So I began to understand that for me as a woman, giving death was a sacred task. And that when I don't do that task, and when women don't do that task, it's because it's a task that has to be done, it winds up getting left in the hands of men. And they then make it violent. I see that. I was talking about this at a very large women's gathering in Germany some years ago. And after the talk, someone came up to me. Because I said, you know, that if we want peace on this planet, then every woman has to be prepared to pick up the knife and give death. We've got to stop leaving it to the people who don't know how to give birth. It's our responsibility. And she said, you know, when you were talking about that, our ego was flying over you. And I said, yeah, I have a lot of uh, connection to the bird. She said, not just one ego, but three. I said, well, that's a lot of egos, she said. And not only that, ego's been extinct in Germany for over 150 years. Hmm. She says, I wasn't hallucinating them because other people saw them too. So... You're coming to it. it. You're coming yeah. to it from the place of I need to do this, 
and you do. And I'm offering you that it's a ceremony. That feels better for me to the animal than the thought of giving them to people who say they want them as pets because I understand what you're saying about maybe we don't want to go into detail about what happens to some of those animals. Um, exactly. And, and I think I, them, I, there's a kind of – all of them, not just some yeah. of them, every single one of them. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, there's you know, a, a petting zoo where there is some process of giving the animal a good experience and then that experience ends – that's kind of, I have a sheep mentor, and, um, you know, she said they live their absolute best life until it's time for them to do their job and their purpose, which is to give meat, if that's what you're doing. Um, you know, she said that we might want to increase the flock. We have two, and sheep really prefer to be three or more. So we probably will keep girls. Um, we'll keep the ewe lambs and at least one of them, and we're, we've got a, a highly productive breed but they're also a highly productive breed. So they can easily end up with triplets or even more, she said. Um, so I'm sure I'm going to have four lambs. And, and you know, God forbid somebody dies on the way, but um, if all goes well, we should have four lambs. And I don't want six sheep. And I definitely right. don't want rams. And you definitely don't want rams. And you don't really even want yeah. weathers. Okay. Yeah, well, and that was a suggestion. So now we know yeah. why those bone piles are exclusively young male animals. So let me ask this. How are you processing them? Just the way of somebody who hunts with, with a deer where you're doing it right there at home? We see four positions or activities involved with this. She who holds the knife. She who holds the animal. She who stands in support. And she who walks in the wood. She who holds the knife is one person and can only be one person. And that person does that task and is in charge and everyone else does what that person tells them to do. She who holds the animal can be more than one person, especially if it's a large animal. We've had up to four or five people. She who stands in support, again, can be one or more people. And we chant. We create a sound space by chanting Om Mani Padme Hum, which I translate for the purpose of giving death as I give honor to your being. She who walks in the woods is that part of every single one of us that never wants anything to have to die. There doesn't have to be someone who actually goes and walks in the woods. There can be if it's a large enough group. There can be if, and I have been she who walks in the woods when an animal that I loved was being given death to, and I didn't want to be present. I came back as soon as it was done, and yes, I helped in the skinning. I helped in the eviscerating. I helped in the taking care of those pieces. You don't have to have a lot of 
knowledge if you listen to what's in front of you. I tell the story of the emperor's butcher, and to butcher doesn't mean to kill, it means to cut up. And the emperor said to his butcher, I hear you don't sharpen your knife. How can that be? And there is an ox and a pig and any number of birds served every night here. How can you not sharpen your knife? And the butcher said, when I was a young butcher, I had to sharpen my knife several times a day. And as I got more skilled, I only had to sharpen my knife once a day and then eventually I learned to cut only into the space and so now I never need to sharpen my knife so there you see you're not processing it you're becoming intimate with it you're becoming intimate with the space of it people have said to me how can you how can you eat something you love and I of course say how can you eat something you don't love It really changes the existence in in your relationship to everything as you start to look at food that way. Yes. We are not taking life. We can't take life. We're giving death. And when that baby goat, that baby sheep, boy, is born, I say, welcome. You're my dinner. You're going to become me. We are going to become so intimate. We will share bodies. And, and really, we're here to do that together. I mean, I, I think we've completely gone so amiss from that that we don't even understand that anymore. I, hear the, ecological, I, mean, I hear the ecological footprint of fake meat is much bigger than the real ecological footprint of real meat. <laughs> yeah. I like those kinds of ironies. Well, I, I mean, I can't imagine the nutrition that's coming through. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's quite but... delicious, but <laughs> mm. you know, when I um, had an apprentice group in Germany, and the German women said, "Please come and do an apprentice group," and I said, "Okay, it has to last for a month, and we have to have animals that we take care of and we give death to and eat." And they said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, not an apprenticeship unless we do that." There were other things. As well, and our very first talking stick, 99% of those women said, I came despite the fact that we're going to murder animals. And one of the women said, I'm here to learn to give death. I keep sheep. I'm sick of hiring a man with a gun to come and shoot them. I'm... They're my sheep. They're my babies. Why am I not doing everything Mm -hmm. for them? Mm -hmm. By the end of the month, we had six rabbits and, as I said, more than 20 women. And by the end of the month, I could hear the arguments, kindly arguments, breaking out over who was going to get to hold the knife because there could only be six women to hold the knife. So in that month, they began to really claim their power and their responsibility. I I don't 
looking forward to it is not the right word, but the experience. No, no you never do. Is, you always feel like hiding under the bed. Yeah. We have a knife well, that only gives death. That's all it does. It doesn't cut sacred as well. bread. It doesn't cut string. It doesn't even cut the animal open. It gives death. That's it. That's its sole purpose. It's a knife with a blade that rounds up rather than a flat blade. And it's a knife with a blade that is serrated near the handle so that it will catch and hold. Okay. I then have a variety of knives that I use for skinning. Removing viscera, removing hooves. And I enjoy how, having different knives. I have, I have a knife that someone made from a bear jaw. I have a copper knife. I have all these interesting knives. And interestingly enough, I find that when I visit um, indigenous people and when I visit farming people, this is very, very common that they have a knife that is used only for giving death and not ever for anything else. It, it has a feeling of coming home to go into these processes. Yes. Well, there's going to be a big learning curve, and I have a um, certified humane slaughterhouse in neighboring county, and they process one animal at a time. And um, I'm going to start with castrating, I think, and cutting and docking tails. Um, but it, we're about to take that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Do you remember when you felt like the first time you sat behind the wheel of a car? Yes. I drive really well, so I figure I'll get it. No more difficult than driving. Yeah. Well, thank you. But you could never learn to drive until you sat behind the wheel of the car. Castrating and tail docking is not anything like this and will not translate into this. Well, the tool, it's, the, it's being, I'm, I'm apprehensive too about, you know, how do you get practice using a tool and you certainly don't want to screw up on something like this. So. And that's what I, that is exactly what I'm saying. Tail docking and castrating do not in any way require what giving death requires. First of oh, all, you have to cut through your resistance. This is what we're yeah. talking about right now, your resistance. We all have it. We're resistant. That's why she who walks in the woods is with us. So we can send that resistance for a walk and say, this is my job today. First I cut through my resistance. Then I cut through the energy field of the animal. Then I cut through... I'm approaching it in a very real way. Yeah, but people have lost because touch when with When you are there with it. that knife, you will feel that energy field. Yeah. And you will feel okay. the need to cut, 
to cut it so that you're asking, how do you cut? You don't need to do that when you're docking a tail. You just have a machine and you go ka-chunk. Only most people castrate with a band. Yeah, yeah. So it, that's, it does not translate at all. It's mechanical. Yeah. And giving death is not. So you cut through your resistance. You cut through the energy field. You cut through the hair is designed to deflect the talon, tooth, and knife. And you must continue your cut straight down through it, mm. and then you must cut through the skin, and then you must cut into muscle, and then there will be blood, and that blood does not count. Look at your arm. Do you see the blood vessels? You see that they have blue blood in them? That's, that's not an illusion. That really is blue. There's no heme left in it. There's no oxygen left in it. That's venous blood. You can't kill yourself by slitting a wrist. The first blood is venous blood, and you must cut deeper until you get arterial blood, which is red and foamy and And if you don't cut deep enough on your first cut, then you cut again. That's how you do it. And there's no learning from anything but doing it. If you want to have someone who you feel is stronger than you hold the knife and you hold the animal... That's part of it. Believe me, she who holds the animal is a very powerful position. So you don't have to start off being who holds the knife. If that feels like it would draw on more power than you are willing to put out right now. Because giving death is about giving death is about drawing the line, isn't it? It's about drawing the line and cutting it out. And these are things that parents say all the time. Do you ever have you had to consider and I, I think I might. Are there animal cruelty laws that could become an issue if you're not using a t- traditional slaughter or a contemporary slaughterhouse? Absolutely not. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm in pretty much the wild east, and there are very few regulations about anything. Um, but I've got a very active animal protective services, which is good. But I didn't know if I would have any conflict there with them. No reason at all that you would have any conflict with them. If somebody walked up to one of them and shot them in the head and said, that's how I finished them, that would be okay too, right? So, I mean, that's what they would all be comfortable with here. So, you're right. That is right, right? That's yeah. 
probably what would be done at this so-called humane place is they would probably be shot in the head. Well, even on a farm. I mean, they would be comfortable with any one of the guys going up to them and shooting them in the head to finish them for you so that you could prosecute them. I'd like you to stop using that word. What? Guys? I meant them, though, not me. Process. (laughs) Process. Okay. Have you heard me say that? No, never. You're using it to keep it at a distance from yourself. When I taught homesteading, everybody came for the night we gave death to a chicken. Only half the class showed up when we gave death to the rabbit. And I realized there was a hierarchy of eyes. And that we feel comfortable giving death to vegetables because they don't have eyes. Except perhaps for potatoes. And fish and chickens, because their eyes aren't much like ours, but as soon as we start to get to rabbits, the eyes look like ours. And then when they get bigger, not only do the eyes look like ours, but they're kind of like us. And there's this kind of like, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, you know what, bargaining never ever works, but there's this kind of bargain like, if I don't if I don't ever hurt anything that looks like me, then you won't ever hurt me, right, God? No. No, those bargains don't work. And, again, this is what I'm saying. I understand. And that's why there is she who walks in the woods. I understand that we don't want to do this. And I understand that we must. Just as we must. Be willing to be powerful enough to be a parent. So it's not a hierarchy, it's a role. We have talked for a long time. And I'm going to ask Sarah Ellen if there's a whole queue waiting or um, if what's going on. Right now, we do not have anyone else who has raised their hand. Um, so. All right. So we yep. can continue on if there's something else you want to say or to get into or even more about. <laughs> probably spooked everybody by talking about killing animals. Um, we, haven't so been talking, we haven't been talking about killing. No, we haven't. You're right. We've I mean, I think it's just a responsible. Again, yeah. you want to kill and process. And I'm doing my best to tell you that's not what what you want to do. I can and you can feel... you you're, again. I understand you're scaring yourself away. I hear you. You're scaring yourself away by using those words. That's why I don't use them. I, I think that you're right. I was just going to say that I can feel it comes easier. It it seems to when you walk away from that way of looking at it, it just seems to be. I'm going to use the word process, but not in the same way. It seems to be just part of the process of being alive. Exactly. I eat you and you eat me. That's what we're doing. And no one and nothing is is exempt from eating and being eaten. And in fact, have you ever been really passionately in love with someone? 
I think so. I mean, it's, I've been married for over and 30 years. And when you were yeah. passionately in love with someone, did you say to them, I want to eat you up? Sure, yeah. I could devour you. That's a good one. I could devour <laughs> What? It is the most intimate thing we can do. When we are in the throes of passionate love, we want to devour each other. It's not murderous killing. It's passionate devouring. It is Kali. Interesting. Is that where that word comes from? Well, I guess that will come as we go through this. Yes, let's get, let again, greet your baby boys with the knowledge that they will be your food for both their sakes and your sakes and tell them that you're going to take the very best care of them because after all, they're going to be your dinner. And I hear a bit of a warning or a, 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 a warning about don't just sell to somebody who wants. I mean, I think we're getting into a time where there's going to be a lot of trending towards small ruminants and people thinking that they're going to be more sustainable and independent. And I, I see, you know, I don't think five years ago the demand for a couple of sheep or people contemplating picking up goats was what it is. You know, I... I I, I'm in a country that, setting, that, and that, I see. That will be interesting. That will be interesting to see. And again, it's. I'm only telling you my experience. I am not inferring any warnings. Well, the but, I, that's my... but I am saying that goats, especially, um, do not do well as singletons. Yeah. And even your sheep herd of two needs to be expanded, right? It, it needs because a third. Sheep, yeah. Yep. Yeah, sheep don't do well as singletons, despite Mary's well, little I'm learning lamb. about they're, they're, you know, they're prey animals, and so I'm learning a lot about you know, why that is and what happens with the herd and how the herd protects itself. And there's, just, there's such an incredible learning curve with all this, the positive one, but there's just stuff that we don't even think about anymore at all. And um, so we're learning about other creatures. Good for um, you. And it's really how long? Very how long have you had your sheep? Ten days. <laughs> it's new. It's really new. Oh, that yeah, is so exciting. Case, I mean, the full moon and on the, the 19th. What, is what kind day. of sheep are they? I have East Friesian. They're, they're going to produce a lot of milk, and I like the idea of the sheep milk because I can freeze it, and it may end up being more than I can process at, you know, at, at once, and so, um, and I use the word again, but more than I can, I, I understand that it can be frozen, and you can then make cheese when it's thawed, and um, it can still be used. So the, the, the fat content is pretty high, I guess. Um, but yeah, we, we've had fun. We, we find we it more preferable to make the cheese and freeze the cheese than to freeze the milk. Okay. And it really changes okay. the texture of the milk. Okay. And you get a cheese that I don't think you'll like when you make cheese from frozen milk. I, I mean, more to the point, it would change the consistency. More to the point, dairy animals must be milked every 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. No holidays. No, no. snow days, no rain days, no hurricane days. <laughs> 
the sick days. I know that. The thought of a hurricane is something that I'm trying to get myself to by the time we hit June. Um, but, you know, I, <laughs> and that, they, and they, apparently they that's go through more the problem with people, you know, wanting to keep small livestock is that they're yeah. used to just most people are just used to doing whatever they want to do and not having yeah, a no, commitment. This is a game changer. So I mean, you we knew get, we were making. Did you also get birds? I've had birds. I've had birds. So it's just sort of growing into it. I've I've had birds oh, okay. and you know, backyard birds, birds and then small flocks. Well, I like the buffs. They have a little bit of a problem with our heat here. They're nice. Um, I Dominique's. Um, I mm. right now I I have um, I have leghorns for the first time because I wanted to expand my flock and they're wonderful protection birds. But boy, they're, they're so just funny, they're right? anti-social. They're weird. I know. They're just like you know. They're like. Everything you thought a chicken was. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They, make, yes. They, they produce incredible amount of eggs, though. I'm, I'm real pleased with that. So, um, yes. Yeah, so we, we went from you know beekeeping and vermiculture and having half a dozen backyard birds. Well, to, nothing keeps you more at home than beekeeping. Holy magolies! Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's that was my husband. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we're already. Tethered, and you like all, you are all you already know about being home all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we how many hives? So we don't. How many hives now? Well, we lost our hives during the storm in Florence, and so we have oh, a a oh. hive. We we just went back into beekeeping. Um, yeah, it was horrible. It was probably one of the worst parts of the storm oh. because you know you batten them down oh. and you, you you lock them up, and then they floated and went sideways into the water, and it was just oh. it was awful. It was oh, really I'm so sorry. And uh, so we've just gone back to a hive that we have a, a local historic sites, and they were having construction, and they needed to relocate their hive, and we're part of an association oh, yes. in the county. And so we we took Wonderful. the hive, and so we have we have a we have a foster hive right now. <laughs> but I think it was. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's, it's, but this is the first with the hive and, you know, I, I have a, a husband that's very engaged in this with me. We've been friends since we were 10 and we're 55 now. And, um, and, and there's a real male, female thing that happens and, you know, he opens up the, bus up in the hive and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You know, you don't do you. And, and he's the more technical <laughs> and he's definitely the more, um, he's the engineering mind and I'm much more involved in the, the way things feel. <laughs> Uh-huh. So we're uh-huh. we're we're going to try this next adventure. I you know, and you can explain to him everything that I told you about giving death my um companion was asked by a friend of ours if he could come and help him give death the local farming family that we were closest to always gave death to two pigs and the yearling steer on the weekend after Thanksgiving. And the dad had always been who holds the knife. And, of course, she includes he, so that's the correct pronoun to use. And um, But dad died. And so Ken called Michael and said, I need help. I have to hold the knife. I've never held the knife before. So you see, even though he was a farm boy, and even though he had seen his dad do it for, what, 40 years, he still didn't think he could do it. And that's what I'm telling you. You're never going to think you could do it until you do it, like driving. Yeah. And so Michael went over, 
and Ken and another man were chasing a pig around the pen, and the pig was squealing. And Michael jumped into the pig pen with him, but instead of chasing the pig, he became she who stands in support. And he started chanting, Om Mani Padme Hum. And the pig stopped running around. And Michael kept chanting and walked over to the pig. And the pig looked up at him. And Michael said to Ken, You have the knife. And Ken said, Yes. And Michael looked at the other man and said, Are you holding the animal? And he said, Yes. And they then knew what to do. And so did the pig. Trust that this is ancient. I believe you. I haven't been there, done that, but I believe you. (laughs) Right. All right, then. I'm going to wish you green blessings. You as well. Good to hear your voice and talk to you again. Yes. Bye. Good night. All right, and we now have three callers that have raised their hands and put themselves in the queue by pressing one. If anyone else listening has a question or would like to speak with Susan tonight, please remember to press one and line yourself up in the queue as well. Our next caller is calling from the 831 area code. From the 831, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Hi, nice to hear your voice. Um, I love that whole conversation, and it just kept making me think of these wonderful regenerative agriculture podcasts that I've been listening to. And uh, there's, a one, there's a guy in particular, if you haven't heard of him, his name is John Kemp, K-E-M-P-H, K-E-M-P-F, Kemp. And he has just kind of, um, he's this phenomenal Amish man, man who his family was the chemical, they were basically the suppliers of all the pesticides in their community. And they had this, you know, awakening moment where they started a new cantaloupe field right next to an old cantaloupe field. And the new one just went crazy because it had never been sprayed with pesticides. And so since then, he was about 16. He's now probably in his 30s. He's now on a mission. And he has a business called Advancing Eco-Agriculture. Anyhow. He talks a lot about this one man named Dr. James White, who I thought you'd be super interested in, who discovered the rhizophagy cycle, which is that the, I don't, I can't tell you exactly how it works, but basically what happens is the tips of plant roots exude an acid that kills the bacteria near them, and then they eat it. And so basically he keeps saying over and over again, plants are not vegetarians. <laughs> that they actually colonize. <laughs> I thought you'd love this. That plants colonize, that they raise, that they, they do exactly what we do with livestock, with bacteria. And um, it's just a brilliant um, and exciting and eye-opening to the world that we kind of already knew you know, like you always say, you're either eating or you're eating. So I thought you'd be interested in that. I thought that was pretty cool. Thank you so much. That is really fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on a semi, uh, 
I have, I've got three separate questions. I'm talking to Susan here. Be quiet. Um, this is totally, di totally different. And, uh, but anyhow, I've been, I've been so excited to share that with you. But actually before that, um, you talk a lot about soil bacteria health and gut bacteria health being similar. And I'm curious where I could find more information about that. Like you talk about Ryan Drum and eating compost and stuff like that. And I get the concept. I'm just curious about more scientific information. I was pretty stunned when I started looking at scientific information about what's going on in our gut to discover the vast majority of what we know, we know from looking at dehydrated feces. Mm-hmm. Which does not seem to me to be a extraordinarily good way to learn anything. No. So I think that the pattern is very, very clear. And the pattern is that there are a lot of bacteria. Some of those bacteria are pathogenic bacteria. They actually can cause disease. They are, in general, kept in check by non-pathogenic bacteria, of which there tend to be far more creating a situation in which you kill bacteria indiscriminately tends to disturb this natural healthy ability to on the parts of people, plants and everything to cope with the huge amount of bacteria around us, and we cope with it by keeping friendly bacteria on our side. Mm -hmm. I am certain that with very little effort, if you went online, that you could find hundreds, perhaps thousands of examples of this. I'm thinking of the book Dirty, written by an MD who decided that really the problem with people's skin is that they were washing and disturbing, mm -hmm. their, disturbing their microbiome. And I have long told the apprentices that. Yeah. And asked them when they're here to stop showering on a daily basis and let their skin microbiome bloom and get themselves healthier. From there, we know that babies pick up gut microflora from mother's skin, yes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, again, these, are, these things that I'm saying to you, these are not like weird fringe ideas, are they? No, not at all. No, it's been so interesting. Not at all. I, well, again, I'm, I can't tell you directly where to go to get scientific no. evidence of all this, but I can't imagine that you would have any difficulty finding it. 
Right. Well, and it's coming slowly but surely. Like we know that the hypersterilization of the 80s and 90s of the household places and the child care places created asthma, all that kind of stuff. There is this, there's wonderful, thanks to COVID and being home all the time, I've spent a lot of time listening to different podcasts. And one of the ones that was most interesting was this gastroenterologist. She's the director of UC, uh, UCSF. And uh, she's talking all about how they can practically predict through looking at a parent's microbiome, how their child, if their child's going to have autism or not, and that they can start to prevent it by, by giving them right bacteria and stuff like that. And I, it's just, it is absolutely, it's just, it's just groundbreaking and fascinating. And it's just, it's like what they talk about with the feces transplant and all this stuff. It's actually really funny to listen to her because you hardly hear the word feces so often. <laughs> but it was just deeply entertaining. That's great. And, and <laughs> Yeah, but so and then so I'm listening to this and the soil, you know, the regenerative agriculture podcast, and they say, you know, we're not, we're not cattle farmers, we're not livestock farmers, we're soil farmers. That's what they're the guys who are regenerative farmers. They're realizing that, and so it's basically the same thing is what I'm is what I've deduced from this whole exciting delve into these two things is that it's basically all about our bacteria, especially since we're made up of so much bacteria. But. Exactly. Yes. So I always yes. tell people I'm protected by the compost pile. It's about having a lot of bacteria rather than a little. Mhm. Mhm. We we've I've told people many times. I'm like I have huffed so much compost. I'm probably fine. I'm sure. Don't worry. <laughs> Especially around right. COVID. Okay. And There's I have a two big other sign in my kitchen here. that says "Be healthy, eat more bacteria." <laughs> I love it. Um, because I love your philosophy around vegan diets and how unhealthy it is. I've watched it happen with my own children and myself and people in my life. And it's so funny to have conversations with people who are, who are vegan and they talk about, you know, the sentient beings that animals are. And I just keep thinking about it, and I keep thinking to myself, well, plants are the most sentient beings. They have to go nowhere. They sit in one place, and everything comes to them, everything they need, and they can withstand everything. So please. So my joke is, vegans hate plants. <laughs> um, but so the truth is, is that they hate animals because that's what they won't have anything to do with. Which I know, I know, which is why it's so funny to me. But it's just like <laughs> there's people. Which again is, it's is you know, well, it's just clear to, clear to a one-day-old infant. Mm-hmm. It's hard to treat a one-day-old infant by saying, get out of my house, I'm not ever going to touch you. That infant would know that you don't love it. Yep, it's all about the embrace. It's not a cultural concept, right? <laughs> this, is, this is real <laughs> behavior here. I think there's uh, a couple of other people are waiting with questions. Have we dealt with your questions? I have two just super tiny questions. I don't think they would take okay, that long. Okay, let's go ahead. Kind of uh, one of them is I, I recommended to a really good friend of mine whose uh, 15-year-old son has been struggling with depression and all kinds of different issues during COVID and stuff like that. I suggested that maybe they could try some St. John's words to her. Uh-huh. And they went and she got some from Catskills Mountain and he started taking it and he started getting a rash. And the only thing they could connect it to is the St. John's work because he stopped taking it and it would go away. 
and he would take it, and it would come back. And I've never heard of that, and I just thought I would mention that to you and see if you had heard of anything like that. I haven't, but it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. I know. That's what I thought, too. Okay, cool. And then my third question is, um, have you heard whether or not the menstrual cups are good or bad or nothing? I don't see that there should be any particular problem with them. I don't think so either. I'm so happy with mine. It's been such an amazing thing. I've stopped using anything that's disposable completely. I don't even have to wear underwear with them. But I was just wondering, because sometimes I can feel it like making my cervix a little more pointy and stuff like that because it sits in a cup. I just didn't know if blood sitting inside your body was good or bad. I wasn't, I don't know, I just thought I would ask. I know it kind of seems like a silly question. I'm not exactly sure what you mean if blood sitting inside your body is good or bad. Well, because you have a cup of blood when you're pregnant, sitting inside. You have like a, 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 I plus, know, right? a, a two-pound placenta <laughs> of blood in you, yes? I know. I mean, I in your body. I think more when than you're alive, you have like, what, a couple of quarts of blood in your body? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would say that one of the prerequisites for life is blood in your body. I think what you mean is, is there some particular difficulty with having your menstrual blood not immediately removed from your cervix? And your your keeper cup cannot make your cervix pointy. Okay. Okay. If your cervix is pointy, then you might need to have a human papillomavirus test done. Okay. If that's actually going on, I'm not sure what you're really saying, but but the cup could not in any way do that because the cup really is basically non-functional. It's the only thing it does is catches the blood. Right. Right. It's not like it sucks the blood out or it is hard and forces your body. It's really soft. It conforms to your body, not the other way around. Yeah. For the most part, I feel like that's true, yeah. Yeah. Like, I can feel sometimes that that's true. There's something there. I'm not saying it's negligible. You you can feel it, but if you get it far enough up, you can't feel it much. At all. No, it just disappears and you forget it's there. It's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you for correcting that uh, question there. That's funny. It's okay. All right, that's it for me. It's I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. It's not like a lot of blood. I remember my gynecological oncologist, and I said to her, there's blood. And she said, you know what? We don't get very excited about blood unless there's a real lot of it. Right. And I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, a little blood here and there. She said, you know, it like it's bright red, and it, like, runs all over the place. She said, but really, it hardly matters. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting professional take on blood. It's like, yeah, yeah. there's blood and there's blood. And we're not going to get concerned about blood unless we're watching it. Yeah, we're just so uh, separated from any sort of medical reality like that. A lot of times when you see it, it's so shocking. But I have like to say sure. exactly. about the cup is that the cup is wonderful because you're so in touch with your cycle. It's just, I, yes. I, it's just yes. been a great Absolutely. change. Well, thank you mm. and have a wonderful evening. Okay. Green blessings. Good night.
Good night. Three blessings. All right. And we have two callers that have pressed one to signal that they have a question. Next caller is calling in from the 516 area code. From the 516, you are live with Susan. Susan, it's Kimberly. Hey, Kimberly. How are you? Wow. I was just talking about you today to somebody. Oh, wow. My ears must have been ringing with your 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 ears must have been ringing. I was talking about how you were trying to sell a house that was being resistant to being sold. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, these these things have their own energies about them. Um, So... (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, um, loved your um Anyways, your what's talk. up with you? Yeah, um, so I'm, I've decided I'm actually going to go with the tooth extraction as opposed to the root canal. And, um, but in either event, I have some prep work that I have to do. And that includes I have to quit smoking everything um, for two weeks or they tell me I could get some terribly painful condition called dry socket. <clears throat> so, um, and I'm really struggling with that. Um, you know, I've quit smoking, uh, you know, before, and um, so I know what to do. And I tried a couple of times, you know, trying is lying. Um, the last time I quit, I made it for seven days um, and uh, was in 2017. But anyway, what's my point? I'm struggling more emotionally because I, I think I'm much more emotionally attached to the smoking than I really wanted to admit, number one. <laughs> um, so I want to a- ask you this, mm. and it's something that I ask everybody, and mm. that I suggest that everybody ask any doctor who says – if you don't do this, this will happen. What is the rate of occurrence of this? Mm. Good point. Are you telling me that 100% of the people who have ever smoked and had a tooth extracted have gotten this syndrome? Now, that's pretty hard for me to believe. Mm. I know lots of people who smoke various things, who've had teeth extracted and have not stopped. I'm not saying you shouldn't stop. I'm just <laughs> saying that this feels a little overbearing to me. And I'm sure, as with most things in life, that cutting back a lot what suffice? I'm sorry, say again? Suppose you were to choose two times of the day when you really like to smoke. Mm. I am of the opinion that that would suffice. Uh-huh. 
Good point. So minimize. Right. Understood. One of the um, women that I've met here recently who I love, who came to my first moon lodge in the area. <laughs> Yay. Hey. Um, uh, she uh, she actually just had a tooth extracted, and she was telling me she's going to have an implant. I'm not going to do that. Um, but she was telling me that she'd had this before, and she had had the dry socket. So she's like, yeah, you really don't want that. I was like, huh, okay. But, yeah, I hear you. I'm going to find out what the actual – do some research on how often this occurs. And, right. Um, you know, see if I can't – because here she is thing. telling you she had dry socket. looks like it didn't kill her. No, no, it's just painful, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, it apparently. sounds to me like thinking about quitting is a lot more painful for you. Well, right at this moment in time, I'm just, I've got a lot of other things happening, you know, obviously, you know, trying to get started at this new job and make some money. And I have the porch going on next to the screen porch going on next week, and that's going to be a big outflow and blah, blah, blah. So it's just. I'm a little beclempt about doing it right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh my I totally God. get it. Yeah. And that's okay. why I'm saying maybe it doesn't have to be all, all or nothing. nothing. Right on. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, post-op, I have a question. Uh, obviously, I here's my game plan building up to the thing, I'm going to be pushing the Echinacea augustifolia tincture um, for like two or three days ahead of it, the surgery whenever I schedule it um, just to ward okay. off any infections. I don't uh-huh. plan to take any antibiotic pills, although I'm sure they'll want to prescribe those. Um, and I'll continue that um, through the cycle. My real question is, they're actually going to be putting in and I probably have the name of this thing wrong, but it's basically they're going to spin up this platelet-rich plasma thing and stick it in the hole as a plug that helps, um, you know, uh, uh, promote the healing, right, of the wound. And um, that seems like a good – I've researched that. That seems like a really good practice. What I would – what, what we used when mom had her teeth pulled for her dentures was yarrow tincture, and she swished with that, and it healed up her mouth really quickly. But my concern here is, is that is that if I use that, is that going to erode this plug? I don't believe <laughs> so. I mean, I, I, can you can you swish your mouth with mouthwash? I'm not sure. I'll have to ask. Okay, so basically I'll find out what I can use in my mouth, and if it's if I can use mouthwash, I can use yarrow. Okay, gotcha. Right? Yeah. Yep, right on. Okay, well, I've been brushing with it um, uh, anyway because, you know, until I get the tooth pulled, there's a, I don't want it to get infected down in there. So. Um, smart move. Very smart yeah. move, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my sweet. Um, and I loved your talk about um, the giving death. Um, having been one who holds the animal and one who holds the knife, she who holds the knife, I I appreciate everything that you said and um, was pleased um, to hear that. Thank you. And um, other than that, I don't think, um, of course, I could 
babble on away um, with uh, lots of questions, but I will um, stay in my lane and I'll let you get on to the next caller, and uh, maybe sometime we can have a catch-up call. Sounds good. Love you. Okay, dear. Love you, sweetie. Okay, bye. Good night. And we one caller that has put signal that they have a question. Our caller is coming in from the 845 area code. From the 845, you are live with Susan. Hello? Hi. Hi, Susan. How are you tonight? Uh, missing to be the girl who walks in the woods. Yes, you can be the, the she who walks in the woods. Thank you for the story. I don't, I don't think I don't say girl because girl's not really exclusive. I use woman, which includes man, or women it's, that it's includes like men, or she, which includes he. And girl is kind of you know like it just means it's one just, thing. Whereas yeah, women includes all girl, people. Women includes all people, right? But all I think about is death all the time. So when I'm walking in the woods, that's when I am like the little girl any further to be the you little girl. You can't go back any further than being a little girl. Oh, than being in the woods. Like there's no other spot where I can go back that far. To be, and when you're in the, the woods, woods. You, get, you go back to being a little girl. Yeah, it's not even the woods. It's like the orchard with my grandmother. Oh, so, wow. Like the edge your of grandmother, wow, yeah. how lovely. Like, because, you know, the woods is scary, dark, and cold, and, you know, <laughs> when you're little, right? Well, actually, Robert Frost said the woods are lovely, dark and deep. And I, I knew you would say that. Oh, <laughs> and we have, I, what, how, and then what did they say? Frost is a great favorite of mine. We sleep. What, what yeah. is it? Yeah. Before we sleep. I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me standing here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near the coldest night of all the year between the woods and frozen lake. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of icy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Thank you, Susan. I will never forget you read me that poem. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Like I always said, I never know what's going to happen when I call you, but it's magical. <laughs> it is magic. Well, I guess I I can't say anything now. <laughs> you can say anything you want to. <laughs> okay. Um, uh. Well, I was thinking so much about Kali and uh, Mahakala and uh, Omani Pamiom and Chenrezi and two-arm Chenrezi, four-arm Chenrezi, a thousand-arm Chenrezi and all the Mahakalas, the 
you know, the the six arms, the I don't know, there's a lot of arms for everyone. And you were talking about that and uh and I just thought how pertinent that was to spirituality to understand that in any task uh people can share the process and and relish in it and just like you did with me just now it's so profound it's so profound you get me <laughs> i thank you so much for that but uh the bacteria and, part, I, and again talking? our thanks to our thanks to robert frost who says it so beautifully oh. for all of us I love this time of year. This is special. This is a new, a new, a new year, and I know you understand that. And here we go. And um, you know, it's funny. We were all talking about death and bacteria and all that, and um, and and I got to thinking about legs, you know, and how spiders are like the ultimate scavengers of death. And if I have a mouse trap I don't get to right away, oh, the big giant spiders, they're on it. They they just like you'll be left with leather, like a leather pouch with nothing in it. Honest to God. Like it's amazing. I was showing my daughter today of a tarantula bigger than a softball, kind of a nature magazine. It's pretty scary-looking photograph, and it's called The Giant Bird Eater. It says, it doesn't actually eat birds, but it does eat mice. It eats mice. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's and it was real? You showed her a real life? Yes, this is a real photograph of a real tarantula. It looks like an oh, orangutan a, a covered in long the, orange um, hairs. And these orange hairs, they can actually fling at something that's attacking them, and they're like stinging hairs. Really? Like let a moth? Yeah, let me, uh, like I will get you the, I mean. yeah. Yeah. this is the Sarasosa blondie, known as the Goliath bird eater, the world's heaviest spider. It weighs more than your average-sized avocado. And it's blonde, like whitish. No, it's red. Really? Yeah. And they call it a blonde? Serifosa blondie doesn't mean that it's blonde. Oh, blondie. Okay, yeah. Blondie, that's that's the botanic, that's the... The, well, it's not really Latin, but yeah. See, binomial. Oh. Yeah, the binomial. People say well, it's Latin, but believe me, there's a lot more Greek in it than Latin. Well, I always think the spiders have the ultimate say in life and death, that they wove the first language and they'll have the last say. Grandmother spider. How are we doing, Sarah Ellen? Is this the last call this evening, or are there other hands raised? Uh, we do have one more caller that has queued up with a question. All right, then, perhaps. What do you think? Shall I go on to her? Yeah, go ahead. Good night, Susan. Good night. Grief blessings. You too, Beth. 
All right, and our next caller is calling from the 206 area code from the 206. You are live with Susan. Hello, 206. Come in. Come in, 206. Yes. Yes. Hello. Hi. Uh, Good good evening. Thank you for taking my call. uh, I'm calling with a question um, about a couple of symptoms that I'm having. Uh, But let me start with some backstory first. Uh, In September, well, actually, in in April, I finished... Uh, my COVID, the second of my COVID vaccines. And then fast forward to September, uh, I got pretty sick and um, all of my symptoms aligned with the symptoms, uh, uh, aligned with COVID symptoms. And, um, and, and I lost my sense of smell. And uh, that was three months ago. And I still haven't gotten it back fully. Um, and I was wondering if there was anything I could do to, re- you know, uh, help restore my sense of smell. And then secondly, I still have a residual cough where I cough up phlegm. And, uh, and that's been going on for three months. So wondering if you have any uh, thoughts for me. Let me start by asking you if you're currently drinking nourishing herbal infusions. I do, yes. I've been drinking them for about five years now. Wonderful. And what kind of scale do you use? Um, I have an old postage scale, and so I weigh out one ounce. Yes. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the time, you have had this congestion in your lungs. Have you been including mullen? I have. Uh, I've just been including it in my rotation, but I'm wondering if I should be drinking you're, it more. And you're making often. mullen milk? Um, yes. I um, weigh out one ounce, brew it as an infusion, and then add huh. milk. Then add the milk after I to it. Strain it. Yes, after I strain yeah, it. Yeah, what I usually suggest that people do is keep that in the refrigerator and drink a cup a day in addition okay. to whatever other infusion you're drinking. Okay. All right. I'll make that adjustment. Thank you. Yeah. See if that helps you. I think the everyday use of the mullen, given what's going on, um, could make an improvement for you. We don't know a lot about taste and smell, but I have read a few things about chefs who got COVID and were um, very distressed to lose their ability to smell and taste, seeing Mm -hmm. as how basically it's what they did for a living. Mm -hmm. And the stories I was reading, what they did was, they trained themselves. They retrained themselves. Mm. Right? So they said, this is ginger. I am smelling ginger. I am tasting ginger. This is ginger. This is the smell of ginger. This is the taste of ginger, mm. right? This is oregano. This is, right? 
but mm-hmm. they spent time every day doing physical therapy, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yes. Yeah, that's similar to what I've been doing it, but not as deliberately as what you've described. For example, um, I will... I started with Vicks vapor rub just because it's strong smelling. So strong. And I remember, yes, and I remember, of course, what it smells like. So, um, so the, uh, I actually I wasn't able to smell it at all at first, but now I can. Um, but I, I, what I did is I re, I would because I could remember because I've been my mother used it when I was. A child, so of course I have a long memory of it, and so that's what I started with. And I would just, you know, try to remember what it smells like. And I now I can smell it, but it's just not as strong and potent as what I remember it being. But um, but I am happy that I can at least pick up uh, a subtle scent of the Vicks. So yes. Thank yes, you. continue to do continue that. Continue on. You're doing great. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Well, if you. I, if I, when I want to nourish a sense, my shamanic training taught me to ask for an animal ally. Mm. Okay. When you think smell, what animal do you think? Um, like a wolf or a dog. Mm-hmm. So choose one and mm-hmm. ask that animal to be your smell ally and to help you. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Yes. And smell and taste so connected that usually if you're working with one, it pays to work with the other. Mm. Mm-hmm. So choose an ally of taste as well. Mm. Okay. Probably not a dog or a wolf. Ooh, they have bad taste. Yeah. <laughs> stinky mouth, stinky mouth, ick. <laughs> I'm sure they yes, think it's great. <laughs> We're allowed, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yeah, and the thought I just had was to uh, perhaps start with rosemary, as I could. It has a nice, strong scent and a nice, strong taste. Um, exactly, and garlic. And I have, and garlic. Yes, I have both in my garden. So, okay. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So welcome. Thanks for asking. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. Do we get to talk um, to Lisa yet? Um, I am actually not sure if Lisa is in the queue. I don't have a number for her. Lisa, if you could please raise your hand. Oh, I do think I see her. I see an Ohio. Oh, good. I don't have a number for her either. It's not on my little cheat sheet here. 
Yeah, mine either, but I did some homework on Ohio area codes, and I see one. So I okay, think this is you think you're great. <laughs> uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm very excited that I get to talk to Lisa Butcher tonight. She's a registered nurse. And for nearly 30 years, she's been working with women to help them live better lives and become better parents and to deal with alcoholism and any other addictions that are making their lives difficult. We're going to talk about the book of hers that I've read and was very impressed by called Raising the Bottom, which is actually her fifth book. And she was prompted to write Raising the Bottom, when she took a look around her and saw that although she'd been working in hospitals for a couple of decades, um, that in fact the doctors and all the traditional health care had to offer uh, really had nothing, nothing for women with addiction issues. So she's uh, made that her choice. Lisa is the mother of twin sons. We're going to find out more about them. And she lives in Ohio with her husband. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Hi, Susan. How are you? I am just fine. Thanking you so much for your book, Raising the Bottom. A really amazing oh. book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, we needed to have something to, like, bring up the conversation about women and alcohol because so many people are like we have one narrative and it's like drink up you know wine time and and we need to do all this drinking and that's all people really hear and they don't see the backside of when life starts spinning out of control and you can't parent well and your job starts to go downhill and your relationships are you know all in disarray. So I think that we need to look at the realities of what happens for people that don't have an off button. And that's what I wanted to focus on. And I wanted to focus on people that, you know, not the ones that you see on the six o'clock news. Everybody thinks that unless they're life is completely devastated that they can't have a problem. And I was like, no, let's talk about the people that, you know, 80% of alcoholics are functional and have jobs. So let's talk about them. Let's talk about the ones with families and the kids are suffering because the parents are always out drinking and they're not really there or the parents aren't functioning well, even though they're able to go to work and come home, and that's kind of all they do. And right. so people think, oh, they're fine. But that's not fine. It's not right? fine. When I, when I was reading the book and talking to people about it, and I kept saying, raising the bottom, and I would get a couple of replies, and I bet you've gotten these two. One reply was, do you mean raising the bottle? <laughs> and I'm like, no. And the other right. was, what what is that raising the bottom? Raising the bottom? Bottom? What's that? What do you? What bottom are you raising? Is it like parenting the bottom? Are you? Is this about right. spanking? <laughs> so maybe we should start there so that the listeners know what we're talking about here. What raising the well, bottom refers the to? Bottom, right, right. That you don't have to hit. You know, they say all of the data and the people out there talking and, and there's some truth to it that you know you have to hit bottom before you can stop but so i'm saying 
we can hit a bottom that can just be an emotional bottom. It can be an internal bottom. It doesn't have to be a bottom where jail is your story or DUIs or where your kids are just want nothing more to do to you with you or where you're on your third or fourth marriage. Those don't have to be the kind of bottoms. It can be when you just realize that you see a progression in your drinking. And maybe you used to drink, you know, on the weekends, and now it's your weekends start on Wednesday. Okay, that's a progression. And now you're sliding into alcohol dependence, and that will lead to alcoholism. So you can choose to stop at these various points that we cross, and that's kind of what I did. Like I stopped in my late 20s because I saw my mother hit a very low bottom. And, you know, she she did try to find help in that, but nobody, they kept dying. You know, here's what happens. When you go to the doctor, instead of talking about the elephant in the room, which is often the drinking, and I realize people lie, but if doctors were better trained in this arena, they would start looking there first. They would start asking people about their drinking first instead of going to antidepressants and medication because, you know, I tell women, if you're depressed and you're still drinking alcohol every day, stop drinking a depressant and see how you feel. And if that idea horrifies you, and you don't, like the thought of not drinking is just out of the question, well, maybe your problem really isn't depression after all. Maybe it is the alcohol. Because alcohol is a depressant, and I think we forget that. That brilliant. And, you know, I've kind of been in and out of the medical establishment over the past couple of years and filled out a lot of their questionnaires. And you're right, there's not a single question on any of them about how much I drink. Yeah, no, there isn't. And even if there is, you know, most people will under-report. I mean, everybody always says, oh, I, I might have a couple couple times a week. That's what everybody says, you know. And that's I lived, I lived yeah. on the same land with a woman who only ever had one glass of wine. Well, God bless her. And I was too <laughs> stupid, Lisa, <laughs> to figure out why her porch was filled with big, empty, half-gallon wine bottles. Oh, oh. Well, there you go, right? And Right, and you ask her, she it. only ever had one glass of wine a day. Right, but it, it was an endless glass, right? <laughs> That's right. It was, it was like half a gallon of wine she was going through every day in that one yeah. glass. Well, they do. I mean, And I, and I teasingly said to my parents, I said, what a terrible job of raising me you did. You never exhibited any alcoholism. You never had any friends who were alcoholics. You sent me out in the world without any information about alcoholism. Beds. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, you were blessed, actually, because there is I a genetic was... component. You know, I know you were joking, but there is a genetic component, you know, so it does tend to run in families. And if your family doesn't have that, God bless, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't. Yeah. But it hasn't protected me from people like this woman whose land I live in, and my life was very enmeshed with hers. 
And so I wound up. So even though we weren't like intimate, I was nonetheless living with an alcoholic and being tossed in tossed through those ups and downs. And that's what I liked about raising the bottom, because for those of us on the periphery, when they have to go that far down to the bottom, we get dragged down there too. Well, that can happen. I mean, it is a family disease. And so they say that every alcoholic affects at least no less than four other people. And that is so true because, like you said, I mean, you weren't even related to this woman, it sounds like, but you're living around it so that the chaos, and that does rub off. And, you know, people people don't think they act strange when they drink, but they do. It shuts, alcohol shuts down the prefrontal cortex. So people make very poor decisions, their behavior changes, they don't see it. The people around them see it. And it's extremely hard to be around, especially when you're sober. You know, when you're, everybody's inebriated, then you think silly things are funny. But when you're sober and you're around that, it's, it gets very difficult to navigate. And they're in another reality, really. They I mean, are. My sweetheart drinking. hasn't had a drink in, 20, in 27 years. Oh, and when we're, at a party, when we're at a party, which of course it's been years since we've been at a party, but I still remember, there's yeah. a certain pitch to the laughter, and we look at each other and we say, time to go. Yes, yes, yes. Because neither well, of us awesome. is drinking, and they are right at that point where they think right. it's hysterical, nothing is going on, and we're like, okay, time for us to leave now. Time to go. Well, that's awesome that you guys, you know, can make your exit like that, and Exactly, because that's what I do. I mean, I, I my husband drinks, and it's becoming um, tiresome, you know, for me to be around that. And there's just, at, you get to a certain point where you're just done. You're just done with it, you know. I mean, I've had it in my life, alcoholism in one form or another my entire life, and it just, it, it wears on you after a while. You get tired. It's like, okay, enough is enough. So, but it's out there. I mean, we have to learn to live in a boozy world, Susan, and we just, you know, do the best we can. But I know, the, like, especially with the holidays coming up, here's what I want to say to the, if you're someone who's hosting a party, make it easy for your guests. You know, if people are embarrassed to quit drinking or they're embarrassed if they have a problem until you get used to it. So make it easy for them. You know, you could say, well, the bar's over there and the non-alcoholic drinks, we have all these, you know, and have some beside water or pop or soda or whatever you pay. Because, you know, that's part of it is people don't want to have to say, oh, I don't drink. You know, why do they have to feel funny about, I mean, we, I, I say this all the time, I said alcohol is the only drug that people feel like they need to apologize for not using. And why is that? Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make people comfortable about not drinking. It's great to hear you say that because I basically don't drink and it's never occurred to me to Paris that I don't drink alcohol. Wow. And if I go well, to a party and there's nothing to drink, I just make a stink. I say, what's wrong? Give me something right. good to drink. 
Right, right, right. Well, it never you know. occurred to me that I really hear you, and I think that what you're saying is absolutely true. But it's just that, again, because I grew up without that being a part of my daily life. Now, as my parents got older, and especially as my mother wanted to socialize more, she initiated a little wine hour at 4 o'clock at the retirement community, right? Oh, well, so she you know, a lot of cheese that. And so, she didn't, she yeah. didn't want to drink, but she knew that she could get people to come if she told them she was going to give them wine. And that's exactly right, because sometimes, but let's talk about that for a minute, because as people are getting older, you know, especially women, we do not have a chemical called ADH that is in the liver, so we do not process alcohol as well as men do. And we have more fat cells. So this is an issue for women, you know, what it does to the health. And then as people age, so what happens is then people are drinking at home, they're elderly, they fall. I know several women who ended up with uh, subdural hematomas, brain bleeds, and both of them had to have brain surgery to, you know, relieve the pressure in their cranium from their brain swelling. And it was all because of drinking at home. So it's not a harmless activity. And when you're elderly, it's even more dangerous. I mean, I forget what leading cause of death falls in the home are, but they're a lot higher. I want to say fourth or sixth or something like that. They're really quite high. And so adding alcohol to that, that can be disastrous. But those are things that people just don't think about when they're, you know, getting their book clubs together and they're sloshing back three bottles of wine and everybody's driving home now and they're half in the bag. I mean, these are, you know, and this is a dangerous time of year. We have to be mindful of what are we doing, you know? And if you are going to drink, then my God, take an Uber. It's pretty easy now to not drink and drive. And um, it's just not fair to put other people at risk. Take right? an Uber? Is that what you Excuse said? Excuse me? You said if if you're going to drink, take a Newberg? No, Uber. Oh, Uber. Take an Uber. Uber. I said, don't drive. Don't take your car. Let somebody else drive you. Excellent. Excellent idea. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. Less less driving on the road. I often talk about the study that they did where they took people who were used to drinking and people who were used to smoking cannabis, and they gave them a coordination test. And then... They had them on different days either drink alcohol or smoke cannabis, and then they gave them the coordination test. And the interesting part of it was that after they took the test, they had to report on how well they had done. Oh, self-report. Self-report, right? And, of course, they also had a control group, people who weren't used to drinking and people who weren't used to smoking cannabis. And the everybody did worse on the coordination test after they had been drinking, but the people who habitually drank said they did better. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. They Everybody think. else, cannabis smokers and the naive people said, oh, I really, you know, messed that up. After they smoked cannabis and did the coordination test, they actually all did pretty well. But Well, that's surprising. But the habitual cannabis smokers said, I did very poorly on that. Wow. So they're a little more in, or honest with Maybe maybe that's what it is. I don't know what it is about alcohol that seems to like lying goes hand in hand with it. There's you know people like I said you tend to underreport. I know I did yes. when I was drinking. I wasn't you know and honestly that's another point I need to make though because people do also think that they can't have a problem if they don't drink vast quantities. And that is not true either. I mean, I did not drink all that much more than anybody else did at the time when I was, you know, decided to quit. But it affected me in such a way there was just no denying for me that, you know, it changed my behavior so much and it made me so... Labile. I mean, I was up and down and crying or, you know, happy or sad or whatever. And it was just, um, I knew that wasn't normal for me because I'm pretty much, you know, an even-keeled person. And so it, it, you have to look at how is alcohol affecting you, not just the quantity, because some people, you know, still think, well, I don't drink enough to have a problem. And that's not true either. So I think that's a really important distinction for your listeners, too. So raising the bottom has a lot of real meanings. And one of the things that I told people was part of raising the bottom is also raising awareness. Yes, yes. Absolutely. And really, really being willing to say, um, you know, when, uh, you know, like, as I say, what shall I bring to the party? And they say two bottles of wine. I'll say, no, I'm not going to bring that. Right, right. Well, you know, yeah, not everybody is Because I have such a neutral relationship with the alcohol, it uh, is not a problem at all for me to say, no, I'm not taking, I'm not bringing alcohol to your party. Right. You all want but alcohol? not everybody can do that. Right. I'll yeah. bring some nourishing herbal infusion. I'll bring some fizzy ginger ale that I made. I have all kinds of good things to drink. Oh, that's neat. But, yeah, I mean, people, you know, that's their idea of fun. And I think we need to change that, too. Like, why does that have to be the definition of fun? Or if you're going somewhere and there isn't alcohol, then people tend to say, oh, it won't be any fun. And these are just narratives that I think we all need to push back on because they're not true, number one. And if you think about when there is alcohol involved, that's when there is a lot of mayhem. If there's going to be any mayhem, it's usually from someone who's been drinking. So I think we need to really push back and, you know, make it not like, I don't know, even on – Facebook. I mean, I don't spend that much time on Facebook anymore, but um, I mean, I still have my author page and whatnot, but I used to be in more of the sites, but I was just, it was very hard to 
not react to moms talking about getting together with their small toddlers and babies and having alcohol at play dates and things like that and the support they get for that kind of nonsense because I do think it's nonsense. Like I don't know how any of us can justify drinking alcohol around babies and toddlers, but there's women that are doing it. And if you're not one of them, I think that's really important what you're saying, Lisa, because I don't think that people think that the kids notice. Well, they don't think they notice, but they absolutely do. You know, you can unsee a child as young as three years old is going to react very different to their mother who's, you know, their loving mother and then the same mother if she starts drinking and let's say maybe alcohol makes her snarky or whatnot, that child is going to feel that shift in her personality, in her voice, in her demeanor. And already at three years old, these kids start getting, you know, we wonder why alcoholism is is such a family because they start from that age to try to figure out how to navigate the different people that show up when someone is drinking. Kids don't feel as safe in the home when a parent is inebriated. Parents don't make good decisions when they're inebriated. So, you know, here again, we have to stop glorifying it because I don't care if you're living in an affluent suburb in your McMansion and, you know, so many families, I know so many kids from those kind of families and they've suffered as much as the children from maybe less, you know, affluent backgrounds. So it, there are no demographics to this and it it impacts people in, you know, very detrimental ways, children especially. And then what will happen is around, you know, 10, 11, 12, they'll start down the road of their own addiction because they haven't been getting the attention they need. They haven't been getting parents that maybe they're throwing money at them and they have all the, you know, everything they need financially in that, but they're not teaching their kids healthy coping skills or getting involved in, you know, finding the child's gifts because it's all about the parent party. So I think parenting, you know, it's huge. I think that's really true that alcoholic parents might not pay good attention to the kids, but I also know a lot of families where one parent's alcoholic and the other one isn't. And the child becomes alcoholic not for any of these reasons that you're saying, which I think are valid reasons, but because I've asked people about this, uh, because my parents didn't teach me about it, I had to ask other people about it. Um, And they said, well, you know, um, I took my first drink because everybody was, all the kids were doing it, and it felt so good. When I had that drink, right, that I right. couldn't well. think about anything else, and it was, uh, and it, I had to hear it from several people before I really believed it. Because Lisa, alcohol makes me feel awful. Ah, uh, I just could well, not believe that it made them feel good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think I thought everybody was just really... somehow like kind of 
pushing against, you know, the awful, like wearing high heels or girdles or bras or neckties, you know, it doesn't feel good, but you do it. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah. no, it actually made them feel good. It really, well, it was an attractive yeah, it feeling to them. It takes away that anxiety. You know, people who have that free-floating anxiety, they're looking for some balm to medicate it instead of using healthy coping skills. And that's what it boils down to is, you know, and then we could go into all the childhood trauma and there's, you know, a, a, a plethora of reasons why people turn to alcohol. But there's also those people that, I mean, I've talked to many, many that said they had great parents, they had a great upbringing, and then they find, found themselves in addiction anyway. So there's just exactly. no... It's not, right. it's not the mother's fault. <laughs> oh, no. It's nobody's fault. It's it's nobody's, nobody's fault. fault. Because, I mean, you know, there are people that grow up in alcoholic homes, have nothing but insanity from their parents, and they somehow turn out very well, and they're not alcoholics. So, you know, it, it, I don't want to ever blame a parent like my mother. I grew up in an alcoholic home. Is it her fault that I'm an alcoholic? No. I think it could be genetic um, with our childhood being very, um, oh, there, yeah, it was not, it was not a, a safe environment. It was not a nurturing environment because of her alcoholism. But, you know, there were decent things about it. And, um, you know, we all know right from wrong. We all have choices. So I, I don't blame her. And she did get sober and had 30 amazing years, and she helped so many people. She was so incredible. And her story all is... All right. Good for her. her. Yeah. For, I mean, yeah. she was yeah, you know, really special. You can, but, you can be the kind of yeah. kid I was, right? My mother drank coffee. I'll never drink coffee. My mother smoked cigarettes. I'll never smoke cigarettes. I mean, you could, you know, be the the one who says, I'll never do what she did, too. And then you do. But you do then. I could well, I didn't, that. I mean, but that's okay. You know, you yes, make a I very good point about the fact that people are people are very upset and and pulling their hair out about deaths from opioids, but I think more people die from alcohol abuse. Well, I know eighty eight thousand I think it was for alcohol last year. Well, I that might have changed. That's in a few years back. But um, you know, the opioids I think it it killed so many people, you're right. It killed 72,000, but it happened so fast that everybody noticed where alcohol people tend to die more slowly, right, with car accidents, bad livers, bad hearts. These things take a little longer, so there's not that emergent like, oh, my gosh, like there was with the opioids. And that really is the only difference because I believe – there were the last figures where there were 72,000 who died from opiates, and you're correct when you said more died from alcohol, and 88,000 died from alcohol. So that is still more people, but you don't hear anybody talking about curbing, you know, the accessibility to alcohol, do you? Well, we already and tried that, and it didn't people. work very well. But yeah, you know, you're also yeah, what, mean, what you're saying is really is really brilliant but, because 
we can see people dive in overdoses, overdose of opioids, but we don't see people die of taking a drink. Right, right. See, the morgues were piling up with bodies from these, you know, and the fentanyl and the opioids and whatnot. But, yeah, like I worked in the emergency room. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still in a hospital. So you see these things, but that nobody ever really wants to point back to the alcohol, the smoking. I mean, lifestyle stuff really does matter. And that's what, you know, impacts our health the most are the lifestyle choices that we make and the ones that we can control. And, you know, alcohol and drug abuse, those are right up there with shortening your life by decades. I mean, for sure. So I, I just think we need to be more aware of it and, you know, not think it's so funny all the time that we have to drink or, you know, drinking. Like I always say, you know, if you don't have a problem, then it shouldn't be such a big deal to not drink constantly in front of your kids. Right? Right. I mean, right. why do we have to have alcohol at a child's birthday party? Why can't they be innocent and just have a child's birthday party? But anymore, you look over and you see more wow, wine bottles. Wow, never been to a and, child's birthday party where there was alcohol. Well, I, I sure I have. Amazed. Many, many of them. Oh, wow. It's, it's very sad. Yeah, I think it's very sad. Yeah. It becomes really a party for the parents. And I think it's I was going to say, yeah, it's obviously a party for the parents. Right. So, right. Uh, I mean, yeah. sure, sure, there's a lot of sugar at kids' birthday parties, which is probably of the same ilk. But, Lisa, I have so enjoyed your book, Raising Autumn, and I have so enjoyed talking to you. Well, and our time you. is almost up. I want you right, to tell yeah. people how to get how to get in touch with you, how to get your book. Well, they can get on. on Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place that sells books, especially online. And I'm at RaisingTheBottom.com. I've got a new book coming out next year. This one is called Pray, Trust, Ride, Lessons on Surrender from a Cowgirl and a King. So look for that in November of 2022. Yes. Okay. And that's L I S A B O U C H E R. Lisa Boucher. Yes. Boucher. E R. Like Bobby and, Boucher. And Bobby Boucher. Yeah. The, um, my yeah, last like question. Okay. That I uh, always ask is, what would you like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's listening to you tonight, Lisa? awareness to to have peace about blazing a trail and not being afraid to push back when it doesn't make sense to you when you see this stuff and with the children or you see someone drinking too much you know we don't have to participate and fall into that narrative because I want everyone to live their best life and you cannot live your best life if you are self-medicating every night with alcohol that really sums it up and that raises the bottom you cannot live your best life if when you're drinking you're it being alcohol every single day check right. it out gang right. raise the bottom raise the awareness lisa butcher you are such an important voice 
in reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. And Sarah Ellen, thank you and thank you everyone who listens and everyone who passes on this information for returning herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Thank you for being with us tonight, Lisa. Well, thank, thank you, you for Sarah having Ellen. me. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody. Green blessings. <laughs>